Let's dig into Romans chapter 8 this morning, if you'll stand with me as we read the Word of God. Romans eight fourteen through 17 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Father, we thank You for Your adoption. Or we were nothing without you. And we just thank you, Father, that you in love demonstrated your love to us in sending your son to die on the cross so that we could be your children. We thank you for this, Lord, and we just ask that you would help us to understand this truth this morning and let it permeate our hearts and our lives so that the way we treat others, the way we live, Lord, would be reflected in our sonship, and daughtership, Lord. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there was a, a young lady, her name was Amoba Ania. Ana. I don't know how to say it correctly. She was born in Nigeria in 1843. Now, her first name is actually the, the word in her language for princess. So her name was Princess Anna. When she was four or five, they're not sure which age exactly, but when she was four or five, her village that her father was the king of was raided by a neighboring tribe who was led by a king named Gazel. I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but, um, and when he came, he took all the people, and some he sold into slavery to the Portuguese and um, other traders, and then some he actually sacrificed to their gods, the weak, the old, they offered sacrifices to their gods. But this young girl, because she was so young, he couldn't sell her, and he didn't want to sacrifice her. And she, because of her status and her, her clan, she was spared. But she was a slave of this king. Then one day, Queen Victoria sent a Captain Frederick Forbes to Africa for the purpose of enforcing or keeping from happening the slave trade. So this was 17 years after the abolition of slavery in England, the act that we talked about a few messages ago. So she sent him to convince these tribal leaders to stop selling slaves. And so Captain Forbes went to this king, Gezo, and he tried with all that he could to convince him that he shouldn't sell people into slavery. Unfortunately, he wasn't successful. But he was able to convince 
King Gezo to let him take Princess Anna with him to England. On the ship, he renamed her Sally Sarah Forbes, or Sally in that, I didn't realize this, Sally is a nickname for Sarah, so her name was Sarah Forbes Bonetta. So he named her after himself, his mother, and his ship's name was Bonetta. So, so she got this name. When she got to England, she stayed with the king, or the, the, the captain's family for a while, and then she was taken to see Queen Victoria on November 9th, 1850. And when she walked in the room, there's actually a journal entry where Queen Victoria talks about this young woman. And I don't know how soon after that, but Queen Victoria adopted her as her daughter. And, um, and her daughter was adopted as a, grand, a goddaughter for Queen Victoria. So Sarah, once queen, once a princess in her tribe, taken as a slave, seeing all these awful sacrifices of her family and her friends, was now the daughter of Queen Victoria. And Sarah had a legacy, and she, she ended up marrying a, a man, and, and they moved back to Nigeria eventually. But the whole time, she was a part of Queen Victoria's family. She was included, and she was actually really close to Queen Victoria's children, to the point where she was especially a part of... Uh, Princess Alice, I don't, I don't know Queen Victoria's children very well, but she was very close with that one daughter. But Queen Victoria included her in all their family events, and she was treated like any other daughter. Well, that's similar to what God has done for us. Except the difference is, we were princes and princesses of the kingdom of this world, of the devil. And if you remember in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we were children of wrath. We were the family of wrath. We were deserving of God's wrath. And so right here in Romans chapter 8, we see the fact that when... God adopts us, we are a part of His family. And so today's message is titled, God's Adopted Children. God's Adopted Children. And our first point is, we are children of God. And we see this explicitly here in verse 14. So if you remember, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit, if you remember last week, if the Spirit is in us, then we are God's. And so here he's saying, for, he's, he's relating it back to verse 13 where he says, but if we live by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all, verse 14, who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You see, he's, he's relating these two things. He is actually using the phrase led by the Spirit 
to relate to the fact that if we are living according to the Spirit, we are putting to death the deeds of the body. Those are, he's putting them together. There's no doubt in my mind that that's what he's saying because he's grounding verse 13 with verse 14. He's saying this is the reason why. So if we are led by the Spirit, then we are under His dominant headship. He is ruling our lives. And it should be reflected in our lifestyle. In the way that we live, the things that we say, the things that we do. So if we are children of God... We are led by the Spirit, vice versa of what he just said. So he's saying, if we are led by the Spirit of God, then we are the children of God. So it is necessary that we are led by the Spirit of God, right? We cannot be children of God unless the Spirit is leading us. Do we see that? And it's interesting here that This phrase, sons of God, is always, there's no exception of this, is always referring to the people of God in the Old Testament. It's always referring to the children of Abraham. It actually is used to refer to the sons of um, Seth, if you remember that. You see throughout the Old Testament the sons of Abraham... And eventually the sons of Israel are called the sons of God. You are my children. That's, God constantly uses that. And if you, if you look over in Romans chapter 9, Paul gives us a little bit more of a picture of this. He says, verse 4, Who are Israelites? To whom belong whom are, sorry, Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. So adoption into God's family is adoption into His people, His children. And so, which we're getting there, we, we haven't really actually gotten there yet, but if the Spirit of the Lord is guiding us and leading us, then we are God's children because That is the purpose. One of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to make us children of God. So, if we are not led by the Spirit, the inverse is true. We are not children of God. Right? Because if we look... If we look back at verse 12 and verse 13, I think this is really important. When we are putting to deeds... To death, the deeds of the body, we will live. See that? We live. And if you look back at 12, he says, So then, brethren, we are not under obligation to to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're not at obligation. And then let's go even further back. Verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. These verses are so tied together, it's hard not to separate them. 
But I had to last week because we need to understand that if the Spirit of God is in us, we're God's people. And here he's, he's, making, he's going to the illustration of children, of family. And he, he really hammers it home when we get to verse 15. So if we're children of God, we are led by the Spirit. That's the first big emphasis that we see here. But in verse 15, when we become sons of God, we shouldn't come with fear. We're going to see a contrast here. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. I don't believe Paul is talking about two spirits here. You have not received the spirit of slavery leading back to fear. I think the Paul, Paul is referring to people who say, well, becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Christ is like going into slavery. Let's say you come out of the Gentile world. What's going on around you? I mean, immorality. You, you can just do whatever you want. No one cares. So becoming a Christian, if you come in that way and you're like, oh man, now I have to follow these rules. I, I need to live holy life. And what, G, what Paul is saying is, you did not receive a spirit of slavery. That doesn't mean that... He, again, we have fully settled that we're to live holy lives. He's not... But he's answering the issue of, when we come into God's family, is it a spirit of slavery? No. Because that is... We live in fear. That's We're motivated by fear. I am afraid... and. And I do believe we should use hell in our gospel presentation. But we also need to let people realize coming to Christ is not about just avoiding hell. Right? That's using fear to motivate salvation and works. But hell is a real thing and it, we have to address it. And so what I believe Paul is saying is Yes, those things are true, but fear should not be the motivator. It's love. It's the love of the Father that He, right here, has adopted us. He has made us His sons. Or this word, a spirit of adoption, could also be spirit of sonship or daughtership. So we are included in His family. That shouldn't create fear. Well, maybe for some of us it would because of the fathers that we've had. It could create fear, right? But our Heavenly Father is the perfect example. And as fathers, we have a responsibility to reflect the love of the Heavenly Father so that we're not a hindrance to our children's Seeing a father is a good thing. And we have a, a responsibility, if we're mentoring someone or if we're discipling someone, to convey those similar thoughts. Because if we are driving our children to the place of, I don't want to be a child of God because my father is terrible. You think of, 
Remember what Apostle Paul says later when he's addressing fathers? Don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't, don't be the cause of them. Yes, they're, they're sinners too. They're, <laughs> but our discipline should be seeking to bring them back to us, not to drive them away. Right? And we see that. We see that clearly in Hebrews, if you'll turn with me real quick. I didn't have this on here, but I think it would be helpful to see. Hebrews chapter 12. Because whoever wrote Hebrews, whether it's Paul or not, speaks of our chastisement as the discipline of a loving father. Verse 5, he kind of starts this. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are an illegitimate, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to, who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he God the Father disciplines us for our good so that we might share in His holiness. You see the family relationship? We talk about the church the same way. It's the family of God. Right? It, I'm raising up children that I believe one day will join not only... They're not just blood, but they will be spiritual family, right? And so the way we treat our own children should reflect the fact that they are, and we're believing, will be the children of God. So we have not received a spirit of slavery, which will lead us back into fear, but we have received the spirit, or a spirit of adoption, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We are children of God if we are led by the Spirit. So, what does this cause us to do? What are the implications of this? Well, one, the imp- one implication is, how do we become sons of God? Do we go and find our adoptive father? Do, do we, did, did Princess Sarah go to Queen Victoria and say, uh, could you adopt me? No, she didn't. She was brought by this captain and the queen decided, I want you to be my daughter. 
God is the one who brings us to Himself. This is so absolutely necessary. We become children of God because God initiates the work. He says, you're mine. If you don't believe me, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, and you can turn there or just write it down and look at it later. I'll read starting verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. What does it say? Paul is the only person that uses this word for adopt, this translated adoption in the whole New Testament. And he uses it five times, and this is one of them. And so we see that we are predestined to adoption as sons before we could ever even think of imagining God chose us to be His children. He didn't say, oh, I'm going to selectively adopt because I know this one's going to look good. Or this one's going to be, you know, uh, many people, they don't want to adopt an older child. Right? How many of us were misfits, older children that didn't deserve God's adoption? But we fought against it. Some of us more, some of us may have been adopted. I mean, we've, we've heard of stories of people being, being, becoming believers followers of Christ, adopted into God's family in their 30s and 40s and 50s. I mean, people, God doesn't discriminate by age. God, God doesn't say, oh, you're too old to be adopted by me. No, God adopts all men and women. By His choice. We are not the initiator of our adoption. That's one thing we have to realize from this text. It is the Spirit that is bringing us into that relationship. And this relationship is intimate. It's a familial, intimate relationship. And that's what I believe we see here in verse 15 at the end. The only other time we see the phrase, cry out, and Abba, Father, together, is where? Can you think? Think about it. Where, where is the phrase, Abba, Father, who uses that phrase? Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane. So turn with me to Mark chapter 14. I believe the Apostle Paul, when he was writing this, knew this. Whether, it was written, whether Mark was written already or not, he knew this story. He knew what Jesus said, and I believe he was referring back to it. So Mark chapter 14. So Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 
Verse 36. Well, I'll start at verse 35. And he went a little way beyond them. So he's already, he's told, well, let's, let's go, let's just start at the story where it's been. Verse 32. They came into a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that it, if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This cry of Christ Can you think of anyone that had a closer relationship with the Father than Christ with the Heavenly Father? None. You know why? Jesus never did anything against the will of the Father. He had the closest relationship that any being could have to the Father. In the flesh, Jesus experienced a closeness with the Father that no one had ever known. And that was the cry that He made. Abba, Father. I don't believe, I don't agree with the understanding that Abba is like Daddy. It's not. It's, it is a term that you would use in the family, but this showed His relationship for the, to the Father his intimate, loving relationship. Jesus trusted the Father. And you, how do we know that? Because He said, Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He trusted the Father's plan was perfect. So that intimate relationship brought about hope and trust that He was, that God his father had his best in mind. Oftentimes when our children rebel against us, those who have children or have seen children, why do they disobey? They don't trust us. They don't believe what we're going to say. You know, you say, you can have a cookie tomorrow, or you can have a cookie after you eat that food, or whatever it is, when they go and take the cookie, or they say, well, I don't believe you, maybe we earned that. Maybe sometimes we do. <laughs> we don't keep our word in other ways. But the reason they don't obey us is because they don't truly believe, one, that it's good for them, and two, that you're going to do it. One or the other. And so, but that's the difference. Jesus always, His relationship with God, the Father, was so intimate that He knew that what God's will was, the Father's will for Him and His life, His death on the cross, was the greatest good. The greatest good. Because 
He went on and did it. He didn't. And then he experienced the greatest separation from the Father. That time on the cross, the, the wrath of God was poured out. I'm not saying that he was separated from God, but he, for the first time in his life, experienced this sense in which the, the Father's presence was not with him, it seemed. His manifest presence. Because how many times do we read in the Gospel, Jesus went off to pray. Jesus was up all night talking with the Father. I mean, it's everywhere. He is constantly seeking to do the will of the Father. And so, when the Spirit comes in us, we too cry out, Abba, Father. We experience that family relationship that Christ had with the Father. Right? When the Spirit of God comes in us, we cry out, Abba, Father, you're all, I, you're, you're all I need. I trust you. I will obey you. I will do what you say. I want to be led by your Spirit. I want to be putting to death the deeds of the body. I want to follow you because you're my Father and I know that you love me. And it's interesting, Paul is borrowing or, or teaching these, this idea of adoption in a world that's a little bit different than what we experience today. It's similar. But in those times, the Father initiated. We see that here in this passage. And when the Father went to get this son, guess what? He left all his old family behind. No matter who that... He got a new name. Everything that had happened to that child, no matter what age they were, if they were adopted, everything that they had done and had received was wiped clean. And when they came to the new family, they got a new name, a new life, new position. Very similar to what we see and the story of Princess Sarah and Queen Victoria. She went from slavery to a king who was selling her own family into slavery to the daughter of a queen. And at that point in time, probably the most powerful person on the planet Earth at that point in time. And Paul, I said this already, Paul is the only one who uses this phrase, adoption, in the New Testament. And if you look with me in Galatians chapter 3, we see a great parallel in this. And I think it helps us understand what Paul is saying here in Romans. If you look at verse 25 into chapter 4, 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What tutor? He's talking prior to that, that the law was a tutor leading us to Christ. Okay? For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So, we become sons of God. This is very similar to what we're seeing in Romans chapter 8, right? We become sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus, into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Is, Jesus, is Paul saying here, you no longer have gender? No. People want to use this verse that way, but it's not. What Paul is saying is there's no distinction between you. It doesn't matter if you're Jew. It doesn't matter if you're Greek, which was the, another way of saying Gentile, non-Jew. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free, male or female, because we're one in Christ. We're one family. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. We see that here. Abraham's descendants. And keep your finger here because we're going to come back and forth, okay? So turn back to chapter Romans chapter 8. So you need your fingers both. If you have electronic copies, then bookmark it or something. And it says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also heirs of God. Okay? You can go back and we see this again. Right here. Heirs according to the promise. Paul is he's trying to tell the Galatians, why do you want to go back into slavery to the law? When you have become children of God, you are already heirs of the promise to Abraham because you're in Christ. And I believe he's saying the same thing here, but he's also intimating that who you are before Christ does not matter in the church. When you are a believer and you have become children of God, there is no distinction. The color of your skin, the background, financial background that you came from, the broken family you came from, every situation before Christ does not affect who you are in Christ. Does that mean we don't deal with consequences? No. That's not what I'm saying. But we do. We should look at any person who walks through that door and is truly born again as a brother or sister in Christ. It doesn't matter what they look like, who they were, and what they did to you. I know that's hard. Because it may be somebody that has done evil things to you. But if they're in Christ, they're a brother. That doesn't mean it's easy to love everyone in a church. Right? Because we all need Jesus. We all are sinners. And so 
just like in a normal family, we have to deal with differences, character issues, differences of opinion, attitude differences, personality. Those all come together. But the thing is, we're one in Christ Jesus. No matter what our background is, we're one in Christ. They spoke about the the early church. The early church was the only, for lack of a better word, organization or grouping of people that had no distinction. That you saw diversity in the church. Slaves hanging out with masters. Right? In Christ. They were treated as equals. In the church. Because Paul doesn't, Paul here does not say you need to give up being a slave. You need to run away. And I'm not condoning slavery, okay? But Paul is not talking about, he's saying whether you're a slave or a master, and, and Paul addresses this all throughout his letters, whether you're a slave or master, you should be obedient to God. Fulfill your calling in God. And, and you see that in the early church, there were slaves and free, there were Women and men and women, there were children. The distinction of ethnicity was non-existent too. The church w- reflected the community that it li- that it was in, and it was people from all areas of life, unless that work made those people leave that job. So let's say they were, for lack of Say they were in the army, the Roman army, and they became a believer. They would leave the Roman army, one, because they had to make all these sacrifices to Roman gods, and two, for violence. They, they didn't believe you should kill. So that was a pro- pro- profession that if you became a believer and you were in that profession, you left it. There's, I mean, we could think of those today. But all that to say... In Christ, our past doesn't affect our identity in Christ Jesus. No matter our color, ethnicity, financial background, family issues. Keep your finger there, but we're going to go back to Romans 8. There's one more thing I think we need to see before we see the rest of Galatians chapter 4. So it says, we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the Spirit's work. When He comes in us, we want to say, Abba, Father. We sense the Father's love for us, and we want to cry out to Him in every situation. Abba, Father, lead me and guide me. When we get to verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I think Paul is bringing this in just from my study of, of this in a, a few commentaries. He's bringing this in because in the Roman legal system, to be adopted, you had to have witnesses to testify that you legally were taking this child to be your child. And so, 
Who's the witness of this adoption? The Spirit is the witness. What the Spirit Himself testifies or witnesses to, the same word can be translated, with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit of God comes and gives us a revelation that we are adopted. We are the children of God. He acts as the witness of our adoption. So, the world may say, well, yeah, you're not the child of God. You're crazy. What's the song we see? I know He lives because He lives in me. It's a similar idea, right? If the Spirit is in us, and He is testifying, you are a child of God. The difference between conviction and condemnation is important for us. The devil only comes to condemn us. The Spirit comes to convict us of sin. Why? The Spirit is seeking to bring us back, to deliver us. It's a, a, a form of chastisement. The devil doesn't want us to change. He just wants us to live in condemnation. So we're children of God. What now happens? We already saw it in Galatians. And, and here says, if children... So if we're children, this is a very... This is a conditional phrase. If children, heirs also. This was the same in the Roman world. When you became... A child, an adopted child, you had the same rights as all the other siblings, biological or otherwise. So she had, they, we have a right to, as heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of God. Now, this can be translated two ways. Is God the object or the subject? Right? Do we become heirs of God in the sense that the Levites? Remember, they came into the land and God said, I am your portion. You get to spend time with me on a daily basis and worship and serving me. Or is it the promises of God? And I answer yes to both. <laughs> I think, I don't, I don't believe that we can, I believe the Apostle Paul is saying both. We become heirs of God. That is the greatest joy that we get to spend eternity with God. That's what makes heaven, we, anything that God has created, you're going to get tired of after eternity. I mean, if, if you're going to heaven so you can play golf every day, I have a feeling after a few million years, you might be really good at golf, but so will everyone else. Right? You see the physical blessings? I think this is a, an already not yet. We're heirs of God. We, we get to spend eternity getting to know a God who had no beginning and no end, so there's no end of knowledge of Him. 
No end of understanding of Him. No end of His love and mercy and joy and peace. Every characteristic of God, we spend eternity getting to know that. Because the moment that we learn a new thing, there's something else to know because God never had a beginning or an end. That is the greatest joy of heaven, spending eternity with our, our God, our Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. I mean, if you don't get excited about that, I don't know what we, why we would just get excited about the other side, which is great. We also have, we're heirs of God's promises. What promises? The promises to Abraham. Remember, let's go back to Galatians chapter 6, or chapter uh, 4. Remember, it says, Then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. What promise was he made? What promise? You will be a blessing to the nations. And so, but then we see in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.20, you're... All the promises of God are in Christ, which is implied, yes and amen. What promises? Every single promise to whom? The children of God. From the beginning to the end, they're promises to us. Promises that we receive in this life and promises we receive in eternity. Isn't that great? I, I, I mean, and I was just thinking about this. If we read the, the first part of chapter 4, he says, Now I say, as long as an heir is a child, so he's a child still, he does not differ at all with a, from a slave, although he is owner of everything. Do you see the picture he's making? And when you're a child, you're still the heir, but the slave has the same amount of, Authority in the home. And actually it may be the slaves telling you to get dressed as a child. Or helping you get dressed. Telling you to eat your food. Or servant. Because that word could be servant as well. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Probably these slaves are their guardian guarding the, the child. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born of a woman, born under the law. Why did He do this? So that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That was the whole purpose of Christ's coming, that we could be sons of God. In verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we cannot see God truly as our Father unless the Spirit is in us. Do we see? I think Paul is more clear here. When the Spirit comes in us, we cry out, Oh, you are my 
my Father. I've been running from you this whole time, but you're my Father. Therefore, verse 7, since the Spirit is in us crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is almost the exact same language we see in Romans chapter 8. And the reason I believe that Paul is referring again to the Roman idea of adoption is every time that Paul mentions adoption, it's always to a church that's in under the reign of Rome versus a Greek understanding or any other. Turn the page, verse 8. So, again, verse... So we're heirs through God. However, at that time when you didn't know God, so before we knew God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. We were slaves to King Gezo, like Sarah. But now, I mean, King Gezo was a king of a little village, a tribe. Queen Victoria was the queen of the greatest empire on earth at that time. You see the comparison? It's not, it's not adequate for God because God is the king of the world, king of the universe. There is nothing outside of His power so the, the analogy breaks down a little bit. But, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, and this is really important, or rather to be known by God. So we didn't come to know God. God came to know us. How is it that you have turned back again to the weak and worthless elemental things which you desire to be enslaved all over again? So Paul is using adoption as a metaphor to show why would you want to go back into slavery, whether it's to sin or the law. Why would you want to go back to the circumcision of the law? Why would you want to be that way? And he's saying you don't want to because you're in Christ. You are God's child and not just God's child, but you're heirs of God, of Him specifically as the subject. And is Him the object? Both ways. All the promises of God are yours. And God is yours. I think it's so interesting. Now we see, and fellow heirs with Christ. Or together with Christ. Heirs together with Christ. Isn't that amazing? Christ came so that we could be with Him. So that we could be heirs with Him. I mean, how often do you hear stories in the newspaper? You know, this rich person died and all their kids are fighting over who gets what. Or even a 
a middle class family. Oh, that one got the China and that one got the... And they're fighting over who, you know, who gets this thing that wasn't specified on the will. But what, what is the case here? Christ, the only begotten Son of God, He could have been inheritor of all things, came so that we could be heirs with Him. That is totally opposite of the world we live in. That screams the love of God the Father and Christ His Son for us. He didn't come just so that we could be saved. He came so that we could be children of God. His brothers and sisters. And Paul says elsewhere that he was the firstborn of many brethren. Christ knew why He came. And He did it willingly because He loved us. He wanted us, just as a father, to be a part of His family. And that's why our church is so important. I'm not saying this, but the church is such an important part of the Christian life because our relationships should be stronger than blood relatives. I know that's not popular. And we don't want to think of the church as a family. But you cannot read the New Testament and get away from the idea that we're called to be family. That's why when there's division in the church, the church, the whole church hurts, whether they are a part of the discussion or not. And that's why... We should care for one another. Confront and love one another. Because we are joint heirs with Christ. Every single person in this room who has been born again and is led by the Spirit of God is an heir. That's what Paul is saying. If we're children, then we're heirs. But there is a slight caveat at the end of this that's not very popular. Even more unpopular than the idea that your church should be your family. Because now we, we've created these churches that are a social setting to get together with people that do good things together, but they don't have an actual relationship. This is even more unpopular because he says... If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. If we're children of God, what is it Paul saying? We will suffer with Christ. We will share. We're not going to just share in the glory of Christ. We're going to share in the suffering of Christ. And it's going to look different no matter where, wherever we live. Our brothers and sisters and Countries like China, Indonesia, Afghanistan, I mean, you name it. These countries where being a Christian will cost your life. Their sharing in the suffering of Christ is in, up to and including death. For us, it may be standing up for truth, even though it's not popular. For being honest, when it hurts our own Bottom line. 
Keeping our word. Doing, doing what's right no matter what anyone else says. And this is further, I feel like, really important that, as, that we read 1 Peter chapter 2. Because 1 Peter is all about, you will suffer. Which is interesting because what, what did Peter do before he... Before Christ went to the cross, he, he promised, no matter what, I, I will give my life to suffer with you. And what happened? He denied the Lord. He denied the Lord three times. Yet God, Christ, called him back to himself. And when he was filled with the Spirit, Peter didn't have fear of death anymore. Because... He had the power of the Lord with him. God had used his fall. Is that really what it was, wasn't it? His fall to deny the Lord broke his heart and made him realize who he really was. And when Christ called him back to himself, there was no going back at that point. He saw that Christ loved him even though he knew how wicked he had been. Peter probably up to that point was like, you know, P Jesus called me because I'm charismatic, I, I speak my mind. You know, he probably thought there were characteristics in, in his life, but just like we should. Anyways, but by the term, time we get to 1 Peter, we see that Peter not only understands that we should suffer, he's been suffering for the gospel. So 1 Peter chapter 2 18. So Peter is specifically talking to individual groups, but at this point he's talking to servants or could be slaves, depending. It says, Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So he's saying, You need to be good, you need to submit to either. Why? Verse 19 For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. It brings God's favor. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So, when we sin, we, we suffer, but we're like, oh, we deserve that. Right? The consequences of our sin. But he's saying, but what about when you do well? And I will admit, I fail. When I know I did something right and somebody's trying to say I didn't, I'm not patient. Maybe you're in the car and you used your blinker to get over and the person, so you're in a three-lane highway, the person two lanes over cuts into your lane with no signal and, and then honks at you and gives you a, a sign to show you that they think you should, that it was all your fault. Do you patiently endure or are you thinking, man, I should drive up to that person and 
give them a piece of my mind. Okay, maybe I'm just that person. I experienced this a lot in Guatemala, just so you know. <laughs> because the traffic laws there are non-existent. But all that to say, often when we suffer for doing right, we complain and whine. But what are he saying? We should patiently endure because it finds favor with God. Bring those that anger, that, that whining to the Lord and say, Lord, you know I did right. I, I have to trust you with this. Verse 21, For you've been called for this purpose. We've been called for the purpose of suffering for good? Now that's, that's, a, that's a topic that you'll hear at every megachurch uh, every Sunday, right? <laughs> no, it's not a popular message even in the small churches. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. So as Christians, if we're children of God, we will suffer. Because we are called to suffer. We are called to patiently endure wrongdoing. Will we be like Christ and not speak evil when we're mistreated? It's hard. In the American culture... It says, if you did, did right and somebody is trying to make lies up against you, you need to be like full force, call, in, uh, you know, call the hammer and have him come take care of those of you from Never Neverland. He's a lawyer who specializes in uh, an accident money. Uh, anyways, all I have to say... We are called to suffer with Him and we will be glorified with Him. That doesn't mean we go out seeing how we can suffer. I'm going to go find a way to suffer. Because there are people that do that. Right? We we can think of uh, monks who would sleep on beds of nails or literally, or uh, beat themselves or do all kinds of things to suffer for Christ. To, to share in his sufferings, but that's not. If we live as children of God, led by the Spirit, we will suffer. That's what Paul's saying. And when we suffer, we need to remember that we're heirs of Christ, of God. That means we inherit God and his promises. These sufferings, these persecutions that we're enduring right now, have eternal glory written all over them. We will experience God's glory. So suffering is a light affliction in comparison. And Paul, I really don't, we're going to lead this into the next message, but I want to read this. In verse 18 he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we think of worth, 
our inheritance in Christ, our inheritance of God and His promises is so much weightier, so much more glorious than the light afflictions of this life. They can take our life, but they can't take my inheritance. And this should give us joy because we are children of God. Do you think when Sarah left Victoria's presence after finding out that Victoria had adopted her, she left thinking, oh, man, this is terrible. Why did I have to be adopted into her family? Or do you think that times when she suffered because she was Queen Victoria's daughter, she was like, man, I wish she had never adopted me. No. I guarantee you that from the day that she found out she was adopted, she always thought about, man, I can't believe I'm the queen's daughter. That she adopted me. And when she suffered for being the queen's daughter, she was like, I'm just glad I'm the queen's daughter. I, I don't care that I have to suffer because of it. I don't know what she could have suffered for being the queen's daughter, but maybe she was made fun of at school. Oh, you're the queen's daughter. You're a princess, you know. But but she may not have suffered but in a, a total sense, but she always thought, you're making fun of me because I'm a queen's daughter, and I'm happy I'm a queen's daughter because you're not. I mean, that's a pretty good comeback. So are you adopted into God's family? If you are, I have a little bit of application. One for unbelievers. and one for, If you're an unbeliever, cry out to God. Ask Him to open your eyes because there is no hope of being in Christ without Him. We cannot be children of God if Christ is not Lord of our lives and if we are not led by the Spirit of God. If you are not being led by the Spirit of God, you need to ask God, is this a real relationship I have with you or am I living outside of His family? That's unbeliever. For believers, in light of this truth that we are adopted and children of God, we should suffer patiently. We should suffer patiently. I've already kind of hit at that. And when people despise us because they know we're going to be honest, or they try to take advantage of us because they know we're not going to take advantage of them, or with all that's going on in the world around us, all this gender stuff, and the church will begin to suffer persecution unlike the American church has ever experienced, I believe. And if not in my generation, in my children's. I mean, you can just read the articles and, and think, a year ago they would have never been saying some of these things. Using pronouns like they for an individual. 
or them for an individual. I don't know how you read. How do you know when you're reading? A, a, I, I don't know. Anyways, all I have to say, the attack on Christian marriage, on the family, on the church is going to get, get worse and worse in the United States. We should pray for our country that God would spare the wrath that's coming, but I, I think it's we should just be praying that God would allow us to see the lost saved as that time comes. But as we do, that suffering, we need to suffer with patience. Remember that eternal glory that we will see in Christ, that we'll share with Him. Secondly, this we should care for orphans. We were orphans, without a family, hopeless. I think that's why James says pure religion is this, to care for the widow and orphan. Why? Because we were orphans, and we were adopted into the family of God. You know, Princess Sarah, her family were all killed or sold into slavery. She was an orphan brought in by the queen, made her child. So we should care for orphans, whether that is fostering or adopting or just caring for their needs, physical needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs. How are we caring for the, the orphan? Are we motivated by God's love for us, His fathership over us, to see the orphans with fathers and mothers? To stand up for them when they can't speak for themselves? Something to think about. How we can help the helpless. Because we were in that state. And that's all I have this morning, but I do pray that we leave with this realization that we're adopted. God adopted us into His family. And His Spirit is given to us to witness to that fact on a daily basis and to lead us and guide us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you adopted us. We we were nothing. We had nothing to offer, yet you before the foundation of the world predestined us and chose us to be your children. We're so thankful for this. And I ask, Lord, that you would drive us to the streets to proclaim proclaim this good news to our neighbors, to live this out in our treatment of uh, the homeless, orphans, for those who have parents that don't want them anymore. Lord, that we would be like parents to children that are in our children's lives or in our lives, that we would show the love of the Father to the world around us. Lord, we thank you that
your adoptive work puts broken, sinful people together and, and make us one in Christ. Help us not to look at someone based on their skin color, the way they talk, the background they came from, and say, oh, they, they shouldn't be in here. But, or that we would seek to be a church that magnifies your love, your adoption of us, no matter who we were. Lord, help us to be a church that exhibits your adoptive love to the world around us. We thank you for this, Lord. And uh, we just lift up Joel right now and Laura and Isaac as they head to Dominican. I just pray that your spirit would go with them, that their work to build this church building would also give opportunity to share the gospel with the community that they're going to build this church in. But open doors for your gospel to go forth and help them to be an encouragement to the church there, that the church there would be encouraged that the love of the Father is for them. Lord, I pray you provide their needs while they're gone and bless them and keep them, that your protection would be over them and their, their families. Just thank you that you allow us to be a part of your mission, Lord, and just pray that your kingdom would be the purpose of this trip to see your kingdom uh, manifest in the world. We thank you for this, Lord. We lift up Miss Rowlett right now as uh, Mr. Rowlett's gone to be with the Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would give her comfort and peace in the midst of losing the one whom she's loved for so long. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us as a church to reach her and to care for her and to help her, Lord, in any way that we can. Father, I pray that you would guide us this week as we go and help us, Lord, to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.